From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razlazan. And I'm Khalil Bandeib. During the years 2015 and 2016, Adala, the Legal Center for Arab Minority Rights in Israel, documented the arrest of more than 400 Palestinians who were apprehended because of posts they wrote or circulated over social media. Many of those arrested were convicted of, quote, incitement. Gave information about teenage uh, girl in uh, Bethlehem to Israel and because of this information she was arrested. Which law you are exactly respecting? Is it like the Palestinian law, the Israeli law? This week we speak with Nadim Nashef, the executive director of Hamle, the Arab Center for Social Media Advancement, about the collaboration between Facebook and Israel. Later in the program, Palestinian political cartoonist Mohammed Sabani talks to us about white and black, political cartoons from Palestine and his cartoons depicting the plight of the Palestinians under occupation. Also this week, Tarani Rusta, founder and president of the women's advocacy organization Voices of Women for Change, will tell us about the Women's Film Festival on May 20th and 21st at Blue Light Cinemas in Cupertino. Do stay with us. During the years 2015 and 2016, Adala, the Legal Center for Arab Minority Rights in Israel, documented the arrest of more than 400 Palestinians who were apprehended simply because of posts they wrote or circulated over social media. Many of those arrested were convicted of, quote, incitement. Palestinian civil society organizations have long voiced protests over the silencing of Palestinian voices by Israel and international mainstream media. But that extends now to tech giants such as Facebook. These organizations warn that Facebook may be actually collaborating with the Israeli government through sharing of Palestinian users' information and even the removal of Palestinian content from the platform. To discuss Facebook's collaboration with Israel, Vomina's Mira Nabulsi spoke with Nadim Neshef, the executive director of Hamle, the Arab Center for Social Media Advancement based in Haifa, and political analyst for Ashabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network. The Israeli government has announced an agreement with Facebook at the end of last year. And although the terms of this agreement were never made public, your organization, the Arab Center for Social Media Advancement, was at the forefront of denouncing this agreement. Explain to our listeners why. What do we know about the supposed agreement with Facebook? Right. Ayelet Shaked, the Israeli justice minister, declared last year that the Israeli government have reached an agreement with Facebook. And according to her, more than 95% of the requests for information from the Israeli government to Facebook are positively answered. Now, what happened basically is that later on in January 2017, we held a forum in Ramallah. It was basically a Palestine activism forum where a representative of Facebook was attending and had a talk with the public. And we asked him about 
this agreement. Now, they did deny that it existed, and the claim was basically that the company is neutral and the company don't have any kind of special treatment for Israel or any other government. Now, whether there is an official agreement or not, what we know in practice that there is lots of cooperation, that there are strong ties. I mean, there are obviously economical ties for Facebook in Tel Aviv, which is quite active with the Israeli government. They take part in the Israeli parliament Knesset committee meetings. They, they have these kind of technological relationships and other relations. Basically, it's clear for us from the reality that there is cooperation. Now, it's not clear how much it's really like an official agreement or on the way this is what's happening. Why it's problematic? It's problematic because we as organization, as Hamley, we want to make sure that there is equal treatment for everybody. And if Facebook has these kind of guidelines, this should be implemented equally on everybody and from our research from the work that we are doing on the israeli social media and the palestinian social media it's very clear that only palestinian accounts and pages are being suspended and closed that only palestinian content is being removed and we had this on a research that we did lately about the racism on the Israeli uh, social media, nothing of such is happening on the other side. So basically, the reality is that there is an unequal way of dealing with the two sides in Israel and Palestine. And the two right-wing Israeli ministers, the Public Security Minister Gilad Erdan and Justice Minister Ayelet Shekid, whom you just mentioned, who met with the Facebook representatives past September, have also been working on passing a law known as the Facebook law or the Facebook bill. Talk to us about this law and what is it expected to do? Basically, the law would allow the Israeli government to force Facebook and any other uh, social media company to take down certain content that by the definition of the Israeli government is incitement or illegal. And if they don't, they have like heavy fines that they have to pay. Now, obviously, the problem here is that how you define incitement, for example. Mm -hmm. So the Israeli definition is so wide that everything that any Palestinian would say, for example, some Palestinians wrote, uh, we need to go out there and to protect the Laksa Mosque. This is incitement, according to the Israeli police and secret services. And people have been arrested because of that. So the definition of incitement is such a big definition, a wide definition, that everything gets into that. Anything that you write as a Palestinian with the spirit of saying, ah, demanding your rights can be incitement. That's why this law is very problematic and kind of draconic. To be clear, also the announcement of the agreement with Facebook, which was announced by the Interior Minister's office, they said that they agreed with Facebook representatives to create teams that would figure out how best to monitor and remove inflammatory content. But they did not really elaborate further. You started touching on the cases of Palestinians who have been arrested due to social media content. Who are we talking about here? Is it activists, journalists, or just random uh, Palestinian Facebook users? And what type of content are we really talking about here? So we are talking about hundreds of people. Actually, there was an article lately in Haaretz newspaper 
saying that there were about lately, like uh, in the last year, more than 400 cases of arrest by uh, the Israeli forces. And this comes like after a, a certain kind of algorithm that they developed, which monitor profiles and according to certain conditions, decide that this can be a person who will commit an act of violence. And many of the people were arrested because of that. Now, as we said, the definition of incitement is such a wide thing that everybody can get into that. So many of the arrests are like simple youth who are not related to anything. And some of them are journalists. There are cases of poets like Darin Tatur. She's a famous young Palestinian poet from Nazareth. And she actually was jailed for three months. And then since about a year now, she's in house arrest. And there are many other cases like this. And the cases like one of the young youth in Jerusalem, for example, who was lately sentenced for 22 months, it was basically saying something about the need to protect the Aqsa Mosque and that the Aqsa Mosque is being violated, things like this, things that can be interpreted in, in so much different ways that it's unbelievable that such a person will get a sentence of 22 months. While I want to remind you that in the case of Leor Azaria, the Israeli soldier who shot a wounded person who was laying on the ground and killed him, he was sentenced for 18 months. Killing a person and writing a post in the Facebook is very different according to your nationality. And the legal framework that Israel uses in these cases to charge those arrested, is it the same sentence for Palestinians with Israeli citizenship as to Palestinians from the West Bank, many of whom also have been arrested who were from the West Bank as well? Yeah, the sentences are almost the same. I mean, they're very quite tough sentences about posts that could be understood in different ways and the sentences are normally between a year and a half to two years of jail for posts. And Facebook has also disabled accounts of editors for two pretty widespread and read Palestinian news websites, the Shehab and Al-Quds News Network as well. Were those accounts enabled again by Facebook? Yeah, they were enabled again after a big protest against that. And then they understood that it was a mistake and they put them back. But they still are putting down some pages like, for example, the Fatah movement page because they posted a picture, an old picture of Yasser Arafat with a rifle, uh, like a picture from the 60s. And somebody in Facebook decided that this is not adequate for Facebook and they shut down the page for a couple of days and again until somebody spoke with them and then they allowed it again. So these phenomena are happening all the time. And in other cases, like when there are pages that they are accused that to be affiliated with Hamas, they don't come back. The pages are shut down for good. And this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And we're talking with Nadim Nashif, the executive director of Hamla, the Arab Center for Social Media Advancement. And we're talking about the collaboration between Facebook and the Israeli government. Now, in February, your center published a study titled The Index of Racism and Incitement in the Israeli Social Media in 2016. What are some of the key findings of the study? Because the Israeli government and the mainstream media are all the time talking about incitement in the Palestinian social media, we wanted to raise awareness about what's actually happening in the Israeli social media Mm -hmm. that people are not being aware of and nobody's monitoring. 
So we asked an Israeli company named Vigo, specializing in following conversations in the social media. Normally, it's more for commercial purposes, but in this case, we wanted to monitor the conversations that are happening around keywords and key figures, Arab and Palestinian ones, in conjunction with the words of racism and hate speech and incitement. The results were, were amazing because it was actually quite terrifying, the, the amount of hate, the amount of racism, and how much it actually doubled almost from uh, 2015 to 2016. Because in 2015, there were more than 275 conversations that included racism and hate speech and incitement towards Arab and Palestinians. But in 2016, the number was more than 675,000 conversations and posts included hate speech, racism, and incitement. So basically, it's a huge amount. We found that there are more than 60,000 accounts that are actively involved in such hate speech. And we found like enormous amounts of such racism and hate speech towards Palestinian key figures like Hanin Zoubi, Abu Mazen, Ayman Oudi, and others. And how do you think the study supports your claim of Facebook double standards between Palestinians and Israeli users? Basically, what's happening inside the Israeli law enforcement and the Ministry of Justice and the police, they are not taking any kind of actions toward people that constantly are involved in incitement and hate speech when it comes to Israeli Jewish citizens. And this is what basically the study shows, because we know about an open files, files that were submitted to the court, about more than 400 files, such files for Palestinians. But we know that from the Israeli side, there was almost none like this. One file that was in 2015, and that's it. And the point is, apparently, Facebook is collaborating with Israel on this because of the Israeli pressure, the heavy pressure, the law and the other methods of pressure. And in the end of the day, there are Palestinians who are being persecuted, who are being sent to jail, and there are Palestinians, their, their accounts and uh, pages are shut down and the content being deleted. And on the other side, you have Israeli citizens that basically pay any price because of what they say or write in the social media. The result is that there is a huge amount of, of incitement because Basically, people can write and do whatever they like if you are an Israeli. Facebook or the Israeli law enforcement, nobody will ask you any question. People keep inciting. I can tell you about specific pages. Like there is a famous mm-hmm. uh, Israeli rapper called The Shadow. And his page is like full of incitement, full of hate speech and racism. And he was never questioned. It's not only towards uh, Arabs and Palestinians. He keeps also inciting towards Israeli Jewish leftists, for example. He called for his fans to go and to beat some Jewish leftists in Tel Aviv because they had a demonstration or, or other such kind of direct calls for violence. And, and nobody speak with him. Nobody shut down this page. While we, when we compare with other Palestinian ones, immediately the pages disappear. And you mentioned that in the conference your organization organized earlier this year, you had a representative from Facebook. I'm just curious, in terms of examples that you have just given us of Israeli figures inciting, is it that Facebook claims that there isn't enough community reporting those type of posts? What is it exactly that Facebook is saying in terms of why is it that there are so much more Palestinian pages and accounts being shut down or disabled uh, versus the Israeli 
accounts. They use this argument that it's about also how much there is a community organizing and how much the community is complaining about pages and reporting pages. But also the claim is normally that we are neutral, we don't involve in these political issues. There are uh, arguments like we respect the local laws of the states we are operating in. But when we told them which law you are respecting in the case of West Bank and Gaza, for example, or in the case of specifically West Bank, when you gave information about teenage girl in Bethlehem to Israel and because of this information she was arrested, which law you are exactly respecting? Is it like the Palestinian law, the Israeli law, or the international law that Israel is violating? And by supporting Israel, you are also violating the international law. Because, for example, Facebook allows Israelis to put ads for uh, buying houses in, in, in Israeli settlements in the West Bank, mm-hmm. which is a severe violation of the international law. It's actually a war crime. So such there are issues that are heavy issues that Facebook do not or refuse, keep refusing kind of to give a direct answer to. And normally they bypass it by just saying we are neutral, we are not part of the conflict, etc., etc. Which is obviously not true because in case of such oppression, I mean, if you if you stand by, it means that you stand with the powerful and not neutral anyway. In terms of a response, a Palestinian response, is there efforts to advocate for a more fair treatment or uh, really an, a more equal treatment, I guess, for Palestinian users online and their freedom of speech? What type of advocacy is going on? And I guess, how can our listeners support? The advocacy just started lately. Since, uh, I think, uh, September 2016, there are more and more channels of communication and pressure. What we are trying to do in Hamli is basically coordinate uh, these efforts and to get also different uh, digital rights, international digital rights organization to be involved in this and to pay attention to the processes that are happening here and also to recruit some of the Arab regional organizations that are dealing with the issues of digital rights and to put some kind of back pressure also on them to say that this is not the way that it should be and that the treatment should be equal. And if you are publishing guidelines, everybody should follow these guidelines. Obviously, nobody of us want to have violence or want to have incitement or any kind of hate or racist speech. But these guidelines should be fair and equal for everybody. And this is not the case right now. Mm -hmm. So basically, in Hamli, we are leading these efforts, trying to put pressure and at least to raise the awareness about these problems. Finally, where can our listeners read about the report, the study that your organization just published, and maybe a final word in regards to how can our listeners, especially those in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area, where many of those tech giants are, get informed and help expose collaborations with governments, and especially the Israeli government in this case? Yeah, it would be great if people uh, can uh, follow our uh, Facebook page and and visit our website where basically there are lots of interesting reports and researches that we have been doing lately about the Israeli and the Palestinian social media and about different phenomena, not only about the issue of Facebook that we have been talking about. Many of the reports are also in English, so they are available and they can download them and read more and understand more about digital rights issue in Palestine, digital activism and the reality of the Palestinian people.
That was Nadim Nashif, the executive director of Hamle, the Arab Center for Social Media Advancement based in Haifa. To learn more about social media advocacy efforts in Palestine, check out hamle.org. Nadim spoke with Vomina's Mira Nabulsi. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Palestinian cartoonist Mohammed Sabane began cartooning as a way of resisting the Israeli occupation of his homeland. His black and white sketches draw attention to the brutalities of the Israeli occupation and celebrate Palestinian popular resistance as well as tough subjects that confront Palestinians from Israel's everyday injustices in the West Bank to their frequent military operations on Gaza. In 2013, he spent five months in an Israeli prison, including two weeks of isolation. His new book of cartoons, Black and White, Political Cartoons from Palestine, includes 180 of his best cartoons, some of them depicting the privations he and other Palestinian political prisoners have suffered in Israel's many prisons. He says that being an artist under occupation is not easy. He spoke with Khalil Bendib. Mohammed, the idea for your wonderful book of cartoons, White and Black, Political Cartoons from Palestine, came to you while you were in solitary confinement in an Israeli prison. You were jailed in 2013 for five months. Tell us why were you in prison under what pretext? Actually, if you want to uh, answer this question, it will be hard because uh, you should ask the Israeli why they put me in the prison. Yes. They claim that I had some relation with uh, some group. They are against the occupation, against the state of Israel, and that's why they put me in the prison. I stay in the prison for more than 15 days without any charge. I was in jail because I'm a cartoonist. That's it. I don't have anything else. I did not participate with anything else except that I'm uh, doing my cartoon. And why did they throw you in solitary confinement for uh, Actually, they put two most weeks. of the Palestinian prisoners in uh, this isolation as a way to torture the Palestinian prisoners under the international law. That we don't torture him, we just put him alone inside the, the cell. But actually, it's kind of... Uh, touching the Palestinian prisoner inside the prison. And like all the Palestinian prisoners, I stayed there for more than 
uh, two weeks alone in the cell. So this is a form of torture, as you said, psychological torture. How did you manage to survive this experience? What did you do to survive it? Actually, I started to think, I've been here in state in 2010, and I found some experts here using the art as the psychological support for the homeless children here in state that was in 2010. And when I traveled back to Palestine, I tried to do the same thing with the kids, to use art as a psychological support for the Palestinian children. That's what I found inside the prison. I can use art to make psychological treatment, support to myself, keep my mind working, thinking about something else than prison. I started to think that, okay, I'm here like a journalist working my daily work. I need to report for all the people around the world what's happening inside the prison. What I will do that I will draw a lot of cartoon about the Palestinian prisoners with a lot of details, what's happening inside the prison, what's happening for them during the transportation, interrogation, and all of these details. When they transfer me from detention center to the prison, the regular prison, which is a locked prisoner and and because they arrested me while I was coming back from Amman, I had some art supplies with me, my sketchbook and my pen and pencils. I started to do all my cartoons inside the prison. And all of these cartoons, you will find it in the last chapter in the book, The Palestinian Prisoners. And actually, it is good to talk about this chapter now because, you know, more than 1,600 Palestinian prisoners, they are for more than 17 they on hunger strike against how they deal them inside the prison. Yes, I wanted to ask you about that too. But for now, I, I'm interested in knowing how did this experience, this uh, terrible experience, how did that change your style? Maybe you were a cartoonist before going to prison. How did this incarceration change the way you conceive and how you draw the cartoons? Two things, two sides from my cartoon. You know, the cartoon, the real cartoon, depend on uh, two main elements, artwork and uh, content. The content about politics, about social things, issues, about economics, but, and the, the artwork. If we talk about the content, I already uh, draw a lot of cartoons about Palestinian prisoners, but when I've been in the prison and start think about what I did inside the prison and I started to try to put myself inside my cartoon which I did it in, inside the prison I used to draw and all of the Palestinian cartoonists and artists I used to draw all of the Palestinian prisoners as a hero as a superman but I think I wasn't superman inside the prison or a hero and was like any human being want to go home want to do his job want to be released from this prison want all of the humanity needs that anyone may will, will need it. That may be what changed my perspective in the content of my cartoon to keep look more and more uh, about what's happening from human being perspective to the all of the Palestinians, not just keep talk about the, the legion of Palestinians, to talk about the humanity of Palestinians, what are suffering from, what they are facing in, inside Palestine. And from the artistic way, I think most of the Arab cartoons now try to do all of their cartoons by computer, by technology, by iPad, and all of these digital devices. 
when I've been in the, in the prison, all of what I have, just my pen and pencil and uh, my sketch pad. That's why when I go back, when I was released from, uh, from the prison, I start to try to use just these tools to do my cartoon and improve the old way of doing cartoon by ink. And also I use linium cut to do some of these cartoons for my book. And that's it. Your graphic style immediately reminded me of another great Palestinian cartoonist, the legendary Najil Ali, who unfortunately was assassinated many years ago. Tell us what Najee represents for Palestinians in general and for Palestinian artists like yourself in particular. I think Najee Ali represents a long history of Palestinians from the 1948 until he was killed. And sometimes you could find some of his cartoons talking about our life now. That's why he represents, I think, mainly the refugees' issues because he was living in Ain al-Halwa camp in, in Lebanon. He represents the people. They are against any compromisation between the Palestinian and Israeli. And he represents all the people. They are dreaming that they have the, their freedom and dignity. For me as a cartoonist, and I think for all the cartoons around the Arab world, looking to Najil Ali like... Uh, a teacher for them because he created the art of cartoon in Palestine and he gave this kind of art a holy for all of the cartoonists in, in Arab world. So he was an inspiration for you. I can tell that from some of your style. Yani, actually, uh, when I, was, I was born in Kuwait in 1979 and my mother, she wanted to tell me about Palestine. She used to think the cartoon of Najil Ali and to try to read this cartoon for me uh, to understand what was going on in Palestine. That's why I know my homeland from the cartoon of Najil Ali. And most of the Palestinians outside Palestine know Palestine from the cartoon of Najil Ali. It's Hannah for all Palestinians, for all the cartoonists that one of the symbols of the Palestinian issues is Handala, yes. the main character of Najil Ali. Mm-hmm. This character now represents all of the Palestinians around the world. That's Handala for all the Palestinian cartoonists to find symbol represent their issues by cartoon character or character for cartoonists. You said earlier that Israel threw you in jail basically because you're a cartoonist and you're expressing political ideas probably they don't like. Why was Najil Ali killed and who do you think killed him? All of these years, more than 22 years, he was killed and until now no one announced who killed Najil Ali. I can't put my finger on the killer. I think there is more than one killer who's killed Najil Ali, who's forced him to leave Kuwait who's threatened him, and who's shot him. More than one side killed Najil Ali. Most people believe it was Israel. Some people think maybe some people who didn't like him among the Palestinian politicians. We may never know. When the Charlie Hebdo massacre in Paris a couple of years ago happened, we saw how vulnerable political cartoonists can be and how seriously their work can be taken by people who don't like them. And I did a cartoon on that occasion showing Najil Ali in paradise welcoming the French political cartoonists who had just been killed and told them 
What took you so long? I was killed. Nobody really worried when I was killed. <laughs> so, Actually, all of that happened. When the Palestinians died, no one knows. Right, exactly. So I showed that uh, double standard. What did you think when the terrible thing happened in Paris? What was your reaction? Actually, I did a lot of cartoons against what happened in Paris. I'm against all of this terrible action against any writer or cartoonist. And my message was, uh, because I'm living now in Muslim area, my message was for all of the people around the Arab world, if you consider your religion an idea, it came by book called Al-Quran, you should defend on your religion, not violence. The yes. violence will not serve the idea. Earlier you were talking about the prisoners who are striking in addition to your own painful experience, you spent five months in an Israeli prison. Your brother is currently spending time in an Israeli jail as well. Thousands of other Palestinians are going through a, a difficult hunger strike as we speak. Tell us why they are striking and what type of solidarity work people outside of Palestine could do to help them. Actually, my brother was released week ago. Oh, good news. He was for more than six months without charge. There's a law, an Israeli law, that allows the occupation yeah. to detain people for up to six months without any reason. More than. Some of them spend more than... And then they can renew it after six months. And that's yeah. a law that yeah. dates back to 1967. Yeah. And that never uh, expired. How can Israel justify this law? It's supposed to be a democracy. That's what we read in... They, they don't care to justify the law. <laughs> mm. They don't deal with the Palestinians as a human being. Either. No one will ask Israel. Do you find anyone around the world ask Israel anything against the Palestinians? They kill the kids and the kids around Gaza and West Bank and doing all of this horrible action against Palestinians. No one asks Israel. They will ask Israel about some Palestinian prisoners, seven or 6,000 Palestinian prisoners inside the game. They will not. And you ask me about uh, what makes the Palestinian prisoner go to hunger strike and facing this death. They just want to enhance the condition inside the prison. Now the Palestinian prisoners, more than 1,650 prisoners inside the prison, more than 17 days, they are in hunger strike just because they are facing the death, just because they want to enhance the condition inside the prison. I think how much it, this condition is hard, they are now facing death. The death is, for them now is better than stay at the same situation. So it's out of desperation. I know in your book you talk about the type of people you met in prison while you were there, and some of them had an impact. Tell us what kind of people you met and what kind of impact they had on you. Different impacts. The people I met, some information the first time for them, uh, they had it. Uh, some of them, they have already uh, the experience and uh, the knowledge about the Palestinian situation, and that's why they came to the event. And uh, I hope I could find and meet people who do not know anything about the situation in Palestine, because the main aim for this book to convey the suffering for Palestinians in West Bank to all the people around the world. I'm originally from Algeria, and Algeria had, as you know, yeah. a great war of independence, a very bloody war against the French. 
to free their country. The French jails and prisons often contributed to politicize and strengthen resistance against the occupation, which was ironic. And similar phenomena in jails and prisons of other occupied countries have had the same results. And Malcolm X here in this country was a great yeah. example of somebody who became very politicized after spending time in jail. Have the Israeli prisons also inadvertently served as incubators for further resistance of the occupation? Did you meet people who became more political after being in prison? Yeah, a lot of people actually when they came, when they entered the prison and spent a lot of time inside the prison, they became more political and more concerned about the politics issues. And some of them, they contained their higher education and became also teachers and lecturers in the Palestinian university. That was some phenomena in Palestine. All the Palestinian prisoners, or most of the Palestinian prisoners, tried to uh, use the, this time inside the prison to um, read books and uh, to involve more and more about the politi political situation. Even uh, the Marwan Barghouti, the leader of this hunger strike, he was in the prison in, in the past, and now he's in the prison. And now he's lead this hunger strike inside the Israeli prison. And some of the great classics, some of the famous books you find in every library in the world were also conceived and written inside prison walls. Did you find that from your experience that incarceration forced you to focus more uh, than you might have otherwise outside in the real world? Did that kind of negative experience actually help your creative process? I will tell you something funny because you know the artist, the artwork uh, does not give the artist good amount of salary and money. That's why most of the cartoonists and the artists around the world should do and uh, work more than one work mm -hmm. and spend a lot of time in their work more than their artwork. But actually, inside the prison, I spent the four months or five months just drawing inside the prison, and this is this is one <laughs> the first period of time I spent it, or most period of time I spent it just doing my artwork. This was something good for me. <laughs> so you became full-time cartoonist for the first time thanks to the Israeli occupation. They forced no, you to be... <laughs> don't, thank, don't thank them. I will not thank them. No, no, I'm it's, not saying thank them. But <laughs> there's an interesting irony. But this is how we uh, use this time or try to use this time to survive in inside the prison. Yes. I will not thank them. And all of the, all the people around the world, when they ask me what the, the prison gives you, what you learn from the prison, I, I answered absolutely the prison. This ugly prison does not give anyone anything. The prison take your life, take your time, take you from your family. Mm. And just because you won't survive, you try to learn or to do something else. Mohammed Savani, uh, you have just begun your U.S. book tour, which will, uh, very fortunately for us, will bring you to the Bay Area in a few days. Tell us what kind of reception you have received so far. Do you find many ordinary Americans who are touched by your story and that of uh, occupied Palestine? Actually, there is a lot of institutions, university invited me, and each institution has her uh, own reason, some of them because they are supporting for the Palestinians, some of them want me to talk about the artwork, like, uh, for example, a school of visual art, 
was the main reason to invite him to talk to, about the artwork. And there is another Jewish Palestinian institution here, Al-Jali Palestinian Amriki, I don't know. That, the Palestinian community yeah, in, the, yeah. in the U.S., the Palestinian-American yeah. community. Yeah. Hmm. For example, want me to talk about Palestine, about their kids, by the art. Different institutions, different, different reasons for them. So in a few days, you and I will meet in person in San Francisco, inshallah. <laughs> and we'll have a longer conversation in front of an audience, a live audience. I very much look forward to that, uh, Muhammad. So we'll see Thank you, inshallah, you. in a few you, days. Okay. Thank you, Khalid. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you soon. Muhammad Sabane is a Palestinian political cartoonist and the author of Black and White, Political Cartoons from Palestine. He spoke with Khalil Bendib. Mohammed Sabane will be in conversation with Mominas Khalil Bendib on Tuesday, May 9th at 6.30 p.m. at 518 Valencia Street in San Francisco. And on Wednesday, May 10th, he will be speaking at Stanford University. For more information, please visit meccaforpeace.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. May 20th and 21st, Women's Advocacy Organization, Voices of Women for Change, will showcase a collection of inspiring documentary films about women's lives and struggles. One of the films featured is 1001 Teardrops, a short animated documentary about the long history of women dress code in Iran, and another is misrepresentation, exploring women's underrepresentation in positions of power and challenging the limited and often disparaging portrayal of women in the media. I spoke with Voices of Women for Change's founder and president, Tarone Rusta, about the film festival and the organization's efforts to empower women and girls to overcome gender inequalities. The inspiration really is and has always been one of my passions to advance women's cause. And this idea of having this organization have been percolating for years, and actually I believe I've discussed it with you too. It didn't happen until November 2015, and we started Vow for Change with the goal of empowering women to overcome social, cultural, and economic barriers and to obtain gender equality. That's in a nutshell. 
But to give you some context, I personally think that any fundamental change in power relation can be addressed at two different fronts. One front is the cultural front. That is the overall attitudes, the beliefs, the philosophies about gender roles, and how these current cultural practices perpetuate gender inequality. The other main front is the laws, the policies, the practices, the institutionalized rules that also reinforce gender inequality. So we started with the goal of addressing these two fundamental fronts, basically. At the cultural front, our goal is to raise awareness about gender-based discriminations and violence and poverty that affect women locally and globally. And we also intend to promote a dialogue about gender inequality and discriminations by organizing different kind of public events mm-hmm. that will inform and educate the community, essentially, mm-hmm. about the imbalance in power. And at the policy level, we are actively advocating for passage and implementation of CEDAW. Your organization is also involved in encouraging the city of San Jose to adopt CEDAW. Exactly. We, our organization, basically led the effort to form a task force. This is the first task force in the city of San Jose, Mm -hmm. uh, which is part of the Cities for CEDAW task force. And just for our listeners, CEDAW is the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, which was adopted in 1979 by the UN General Assembly. And since then, there are many, many countries who have signed to it. However, there are a few countries that have not signed on to it, and one of them is USA, Mm -hmm. the other is the Iran government. And even though President Carter has signed on to it, but it has not been ratified by the Senate, and therefore it doesn't have any teeth. Mm -hmm. So in 2014, there is a new campaign that started in the USA, which is called the Cities for CEDAW campaign. And basically what it means is that to adopt the principles of CEDAW mm. at the local governments, basically. And that's where we come in. And we formed this task force in this area to hopefully have City of San Jose and later on other cities to follow mm-hmm. to adopt the ordinance. And yeah. this ordinance reinforces the principles of CEDAW in all local government agencies, departments, mm-hmm. local laws. And it creates a lot of protection for women. It deals with gender gap, it deals with wage gap, it deals with a lot of discriminatory practices. Mm. So if it does pass, it's really a game changer, and we're really excited about it, and we're happy that this movement is really gaining momentum. And in fact, last week we had a meeting with Magdalena Kersalkos. She's a vice mayor of city of San Jose, and we've had many meetings with other council members and with supervisors. And this is one of the first meetings that was very promising because she committed herself to pass the ordinance in the city of San Jose. But, of course, we have to continue to lobby the local government in order to make sure it happens because, obviously, it requires a lot of funding. There has to be a gender analysis. There has to be implementation. There has to be oversight body, and hopefully we'll be collaborating with them to be part of that oversight body. And uh, San Francisco and Los Angeles were two cities in California that adopted it. And I think Berkeley has also adopted the local ordinance. In fact, San Francisco was the very first... Yeah, 1998. 1998 that passed the, the ordinance and... Interestingly enough, you know, since they passed the ordinance, it has had really tangible and real impact on women's lives. And in fact, once it passed, 
city of San Francisco did not have a single domestic violence-related homicide in 44 months, which is unheard of. So it, it has that kind of impact, real impact on women's lives, and that's why we're so committed to this cause, really. And so basically this is at the policy level, and of course, you know, one of our other goals is to shed light on violation of women's uh, human rights in Iran. And one of the first things we did was to create a news committee for the purpose of disseminating information about women's issues on the website and the social media. So right now, we basically give exposure to a lot of news related to women's issues, and we give a lot of coverage to violation of women's human rights. However, we are going to do a lot more about violation of uh, women's rights in Iran, and that includes writing petitions, writing letters, having public events, having demonstrations, writing to public officials. So basically our goal is to give more exposure yeah. to what's happening in Iran and how it impacts women and the issues of discrimination against women in Iran. Since we are talking about the violations of human rights in Iran, one of the campaigns that your organization has been involved in, and recently we have had some really bad news about it, is the case of human rights activist Nargisa Mohammadi. She was sentenced to 10 years in jail, and she will be eligible for release after serving 10 years in prison. We intend to do more work on her case, of course, because this is unacceptable. We are not willing to accept that sentence. And hopefully after the film festival is over, we get to spend some more time on her particular case. Just to mention that we also plan to collaborate with Amnesty International mm -hmm. and other uh, human rights organizations to address this issue. So let's move on and talk about your upcoming Women Film Festival planned for May 20th and 21st. Uh, the festival will feature a collection of very interesting and timely documentary films about women and by women filmmakers. There are two documentaries about women in Iran. One of the films featured is 1001 Teardrops. It's a short animated documentary about the long history and politics of women dress code in Iran. And the other one is the award-winning No Lands Song. Tell us about these and other films you will be showing in the festival. We do have the synopsis of each film in our website, which is voicesofwomenforchange.com. But just to give you a little bit of information about No Land Song, which is, by the way, the only film that we're going to show both days. We're mm -hmm. showing it on Saturday. And on Saturday, we'll be featuring Sarah Najafi. She's the main character and also the composer of this film. And she's going to have a talk and a Q&A session after the film. And on Sunday, we're going to show it again, just in case if there are some people who wanted to see it and they didn't get to see it. But basically, it's about the Islamic Revolution of 1979, who banned female singers from appearing in public in Iran. And it's a story of a woman, Sarah Najafi, who goes into the heart of Tehran and Iran and tries to basically work her way through the Ministry of Culture and other institutions in order to break this barrier, in order to create a movement, sort of. This is an, essentially a political thriller and a musical journey. It has a lot of music in it, 
And at its center, there's a female voice. And that's why we chose this film. And it's a gripping story of this woman who is trying to challenge these draconian laws in Iran that forbid women solo singing. And it's pretty powerful, but it's also very entertaining. And the other one, 1001 Teardrops? That's true. And this film is done by Fatima Ahmadi, who's the filmmaker, and she lives in London. And it's basically, it's the story of uh, little Luli. And at the first day of school, she's kind of pondering whether or not she should wear what she wants or the ugly school uniform. And it's quite entertaining. And also, the way it wraps up is very promising, and it has a lot of hope in it. If people are choosing to just see one film or two films, I highly recommend Mm. people to see 1001 Teardrops and No Land Song. Uh, The other movies are done by non-Iranian women. One of them is The Misrepresentation. It's a film done by Jennifer Sibyl Newsom. It explores women's underrepresentation in position of power by challenging the limited and often disparaging portrayal of women in the media. This is also very informative, very educational, also very entertaining. The other film that we're showing is Ovarian Psychos by Joanna Sokolovsky and Kate Trumbull. And this film is quite revolutionary, and it's about a group of women who are very unapologetic. These are women of color, Hmm. and their purpose is uh, to heal and reclaim their neighborhood Hmm. and create a safer street for women. So the film takes you through the lives of these women and their their kind of activism and their brand of feminism. Hmm. And there are two other films, I Am a Girl and Iron Jawed Angels. This film is about the life and work of Alice Paul. She Mm -hmm. was an American feminist who really risked her life to fight for women's uh, right to vote. And she is the one who founded the separatist uh, national women's movement, basically. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the only feature film we have. And it's very, very powerful. And the main character's refusal to eat earns them the title of the Iron Jawed Angels. Uh, I'm not going to spill the beans. You know, I really <laughs> no, don't come and watch it. But it's a very, very powerful mm-hmm. film. And I think anyone who watches this film, they would ever, never stay at home when there's time to vote. Yeah, and also it becomes even more important, Tarana, at a time that American voters, especially people of colors, have been disfranchised. And now more Mm -hmm. than ever, really, there's this heightened sense of urgency around advancing equality and gender equality. And as you said, these films are very timely. And um, I really invite all your listeners to come and see the films, join the films, but again, they're they're very empowering, they're very uplifting and very inspiring. What's the best way for our listeners to find out more about the festival? These films are being shown in Cupertino in uh, the South Bay area on both Saturday, May 20th and May 21st. Both days, the films start at 5 Mm p.m., The way to purchase tickets, you can buy them for one-day pass or two-day pass, or you can purchase your tickets for individual films if you just want to see one or two. You can purchase the tickets at bluelightcinemas.com. Cinemas has an S at the end, Mm -hmm. 
And you can also uh, go to our website, voicesofwomenforchange.com, and there, again, there are synopsis of each film with the information. But for the timing and purchasing the ticket, you have to go to bluelightcinemas.com. Tarani Rusta is founder and president of Voices of Women for Change, a nonprofit organization aimed to empower women and girls to overcome gender-based barriers and to live in a world free of violence and discrimination through conscious raising and advocacy. The Voices of Women for Change two-day Women Film Festival will take place on May 20th and 21st at Blue Light Cinemas located at 21275 Stevens Creek Boulevard in Cupertino. For more information and the festival's schedule, please visit voicesofwomenforchange.com. You may email them at women at voicesofwomenforchange.com. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.